With a background of sky-high inflation, geopolitical uncertainty with war in Ukraine, and a housing market scorched by record home prices, Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland's unveiled her second budget. Will it help you? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Han. This is the first budget after the Liberals and NDP announced their supply and confidence agreement, which would see them prop up the government until 2025. Now, in terms of new spending, this budget comes with much less than previous ones as COVID support programs come to an end. There's just over $31 billion over the next five years of new spending. And this budget will also see the deficit drop to $52 billion, down half from last year's forecast. Now, that windfall comes in the form of higher oil prices and revenues. And while the country has more than made up for lost jobs that evaporated during the pandemic, some money minds were looking for future growth. Our unpublished vote question asked you, does the 2022 federal budget address your economic concerns? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the numbers with economist Jim Stanford, the director of the Center for Future Work. As well, we'll get the view from small business with Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. But first, I am pleased to be joined by Warren Kinsella, political commentator, former special advisor to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And Warren, is this an NDP budget? Yeah, it is. It is the, as I like to call it, it's the axis of weasels. <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, if it looks to you like it was something cooked up by in a Trotskyite back room, it kind of is like that. And it, it just seems to be blissfully ignorant of the realities that Joe and Jane Front Porch are grappling with today, you know, which, as you pointed out, is inflation, which is at a 30 year high. Um, you know, you've got COVID on a rampage again in Ontario, we're being told that as many as 120,000 people are getting sick every single day. And then you've got a war in you in Ukraine, you know, one of our, our closest allies, we've got the biggest Ukrainian diaspora in the world here in Canada. And like, on all of those standards on each one of them, and we can certainly talk about it. I think that the budget budget was a failure. Was it as much of a failure as, as people expected? Perhaps not. But I think on the key things that people are preoccupied with right now, it was. It, so that, uh, in terms of uh, preoccupation, is obviously in inflation. Now, a lot of the revenue the government's getting is from, obviously, higher um, gas prices and fuel prices. Uh, if you could sort of curb back on the carbon tax, like you were suggesting in your last column, do you not lose a bit of that revenue? Like, I'll be fair to Trudeau. You know, there is no question he had a carbon tax in his 2015 platform. He was elected on that platform. He repeated his vow to have a carbon tax in 2019. He was reelected with a minority. It's gone all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, as we both know. And the Supreme Court of Canada said he had the constitutional and legal authority to do it. So I believe he can do it. The point that I was making, and I think a lot of other people are making, is, you know, a few days ago when he raised it, you know, on April the 1st, like, it, it was just the wrong time to do it. Yes, you have the authority to do it. You've got a democratic result that says you can do it, but you shouldn't do it now when we're looking at inflation at a 30-year high. And P.S., Ed, he did it on the day that MPs and members of cabinet gave themselves a massive raise. You know, it was just the optics, the look was all bad. And, you know, that's why I think that, you know, doing the carbon tax right now is not a prudent or, or a fair thing to do to Canadians. 
in terms of inflation and, and rising prices, of course, uh, Canada's housing market is uh, still out of control. But is a tax-free savings account for a down payment going to be enough to, to get more people into the market? No, it's not. And, you know, he's got a renovation program there. They've got this savings program. Um, they've got a tax credit. There's actually, they've got more housing programs than I think there is housing stock available in Canada. And, and there's no question, you know, we have one of the lowest amounts of houses available for people to buy in, in the G7. And, you know, my kids, as you and I have talked about before, all four of them, they were raised in Toronto and they've left. You know, my daughter said to me, dad, I'm never going to be able to afford to buy a house in Toronto or a condo. And she's right. So, you know, the government needed to do something about that as to whether these programs that they cooked up will have any meaningful effect? I don't think so, because the issue really is the one you pointed out a few minutes ago, which is interest rates. You know, as long as interest rates are as low as they are, um, it, it's fostering this overheated uh, housing market, but it's also contributing to inflation. Affordable housing has always been a, a key issue uh, in the country. And, and it, the new housing accelerator fund for municipalities uh, aims to create more, more housing, but that's a provincial responsibility, is it not? It is. And whenever I hear a government talking about cutting red tape, it's like, oh, they're going to create an office that will create more red tape to cut red tape. Like, you know, we're entitled, I think, uh, to be skeptical about some of these things. And in fairness to Freeland or to Prime Minister Singh, as I like to now call him, <laughs> like, they, they can only meaningfully do a bit. You know, for example, inflation is a global phenomenon. President Biden's grappling with it. Prime Minister Johnson. Everybody's dealing with inflation at the present time. But the question is, you know, like if you, you look back to the days when my gang was running things in 94, that first Chrétien budget, you know, where we were facing a lot of the same things Trudeau is, you know, our debt uh, to GDP ratio was terrible. We'd been downgraded by the credit rating, rating agencies. You know, we were seen as kind of a basket case economically. A lot of the same criticisms are being directed at Trudeau, but the, the qualitative difference is he doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And he's got the tools to do something about it right now, because as you pointed out, he's actually in a better budgetary position in 2022 than Crenshaw was in 1994. You know, Bay Street's not happy with, with the budget, uh, particularly about the, the potential for growth as it's uh, dwindling here in Canada. But the deficit, on the other hand, will dramatically drop next year. How do you sort of counter the two of those? Well, I guess my answer is 1.2 trillion. That's what the, the the debt is going to be, the national debt. And we need to account for that at some point uh, as well. You know, like at the point where Krenzian took power in 94, sorry to keep going back to that, but the, you know, that's the point of comparison I've got, mm -hmm. is in 94, as you will recall, we had uh, a debt to uh, GDP ratio of about 67%. Like we were, a, we were an economic basket case. Trudeau is not in as bad a position. He's definitely benefited from lower interest rates. The low interest rates that we pay for our houses and our cars and whatnot and loans, you know, Trudeau's also benefiting from that. But he was in a position to deal with this. You know, he had said to us in 2015, I'm going to, I vow it's in stone. I am going to balance the budget by 2019 when he was in a position to do that before the pandemic and he didn't. And now, of course, you know, we're in a much uh, worse position. We all know that rates are going to go up and that's going to have, you know, for example, what Trudeau is now paying to service the debt 
is more than our entire defense commitment, which, by the way, the budget didn't meet yesterday either. You know, 2016, Obama came, you know, the guy behind me here and spoke to Parliament and said, you know, NATO needs more Canada. And everybody in Canada nodded their heads. And we still haven't met our NATO commitment, even with this terrible genocidal war taking place in Ukraine. And that's uh, where I was going to go next. Ukraine, obviously, top of mind. You know, defense got $8 billion over five years, but does not put it anywhere near that uh, that percentage. But, you know, I'm wondering, um, you know, this, this war has been going on for a, about a month now. And when it comes to building a budget, you know, that's a long-term project. Uh, how do you deal with something that sort of gets thrown into the mix when you're just trying to put everything together at the end? Well, because the criticism has been made for some time, you know, and in fairness to Trudeau, Harper didn't meet the 2% commitment either. Um, but, it, you know, we live in a more dangerous world, you know, like this conflict that's taking place in Ukraine. It's not just taking place in Ukraine. It's taking place in Europe. Right? That's where Canadians go to have vacations, you know, and we've got the largest Ukrainian population outside of Russia and Ukraine here in Canada. So we have an ethical and but also a strategic obligation to pay attention to this conflict. And even Ed, with all of that, you know, Freeland and Trudeau and Singh still couldn't bring themselves to meet that piddling commitment of 2% of GDP. Yes, she spent more, but she didn't spend enough. And, you know, that is an ongoing thing. That's not something that just is, is required as a consequence of Ukraine. It's something that we should have done years ago. Warren, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. Warren Kinsella is a political commentator and former special advisor to Prime Minister Jean Cranchin. When it came to this budget, all eyes were on the cooperation agreement between the Liberals and the NDP. Jim Stanford's an economist and the director of the Center for Future Work, and he joins us now. And, and Jim, do you feel the government broke the bank in terms of spending with this budget? No, I don't think so, Ed. Uh, the dollar figures allocated to the new programs that came along with that uh, confidence and supply agreement with the NDP are actually pretty small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. The most concrete measure uh, from that deal was the dental care program rolling out over five years, starting with kids under 12. And that whole thing is $5 billion over five years. So, you know, think about a, a budget of uh, 400 and some billion in total and uh, deficits uh, that were enormous during the, uh, during the pandemic. And uh, that, that will not fundamentally affect the fiscal trajectory. Uh, in fact, the deficit is, is much smaller than was expected even just a few months ago, thanks to the very strong economic growth numbers we're seeing. So um, I don't, I, you know, I think politically that agreement was very significant, but it, it, you don't really see its footprint all over this budget. You know, in terms of the dental care plan, uh, how is that going to benefit the economy? Oh, I, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be very useful uh, in a number of ways. Um, uh, think about um, payroll costs for employers. You know, you typically have uh, dental as one of the major employment-related benefits. Now, a lot of Canadians don't get those benefits with their jobs. Probably half, in fact, have jobs that would not offer that sort of basic supplementary health benefit. So for them, they're not necessarily getting the dental care or they have to pay it out of pocket. And you have a situation where a lot of low-income people can't do that. So then what happens? They get rotten teeth and infections and it ends up costing more money down the road. So uh, as basic dollars and cents prevention, uh, this makes sense. 
But from the payroll cost perspective, if this kind of expands and we end up with a situation where um, uh, across the board, your basic dental care is covered for most people through a public system, uh, that will be a very significant saving for employers uh, in the long run. So, you know, that's not going to happen overnight. This is being phased in. But uh, in economic terms, we, we already know, Ed, that our Medicare system is a huge competitive advantage in Canada for employers here versus, say, the U.S., uh, they save billions because we've got a public health care system. And the same logic applies to dental care. We don't have a national pharmacare program, though. I, I, that was one of the, uh, the, the I guess, the, the deals between the, the two parties uh, or health transfers. We didn't see any extra money for health. Or are you surprised about that? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the pharmacare thing, we've been talking about pharmacare. And even before the deal with the NDP, of course, the liberals were... Um, you know, indicating, in, in, in fact, for some years, their interest in it, but it, it, it just hasn't uh, unfolded yet. I think partly because of the uh, the need to negotiate with the provinces around a, a, a thing like that. We've seen with the child care, the national child care agreement, how tricky those provincial negotiations can be. And uh, perhaps the government just didn't want to, you know, bite off another whole process like that. Uh, for pharmacare. Um, on the other hand, it is in the agreement. There's words in the budget about uh, moving forward and uh, um, um, more, you know, exploration and development of the proposal. So uh, I would hope that they uh, they get more concrete uh, on that. On the health transfers to the provinces, um, I mean, you know, we, we live in a, a federal system and whining between the provinces and the federal government is kind of a national sport. And we've seen that happening big time in the last uh, in the months leading up to this budget. But the reality is the provincial budgets are in much better shape than anyone thought they would have been a year or two ago as well. We've already got some provinces balancing the budgets uh, despite the, the pandemic. Uh, so I think the cry that the, the provinces need special help somehow uh, didn't quite resonate. So there's, no, you know, there's obviously huge transfers being paid under the existing systems, but there was no big change in the in those uh frameworks in yesterday's budget uh one of the other targets of this budget was uh the sky high prices of housing in canada in particular for for first-time buyers and you know is is a tax-free savings account going to be enough for for uh these people or, or do they need more help oh gosh uh you know i think they budgeted uh 750 million as the total fiscal uh contribution through those tax-free first home buyer savings accounts or whatever, whatever the heck the acronym for that one is going to be. Um, and that is absolutely small potatoes in the in the overall housing market. We've seen a 30% run up in uh, housing prices uh, since the pandemic and uh, hundreds of billions of dollars at stake there. So, you know, I, I see that thing as more uh, optics than anything else, to be frank. I don't think that's going to make a significant difference to housing affordability. I was more impressed with the direct money that the government committed to uh, constructing um, low cost and non-market housing. Uh, we've seen now the federal government say that the housing co-op sector uh, is going to be an important part of um, making housing more affordable. And, and remember, a co-op is where it's not privately owned. You live in it, you pay towards it, you're a member, but you don't have your house as a speculative asset. To sell, I used to live in a housing co-op, and they're they're great. But we haven't been doing this for the last couple of decades, and now uh, Ottawa is seeing the housing co-ops as uh, one of many measures uh, to try and uh, increase the supply of more affordable or non-market housing. I think that'll be much more important in the long run. 
Uh, in, in terms of uh, housing as well, they plan a ban or a two-year ban on foreign ownership. Uh, you know, if there's so few people uh, from outside this country buying, is it really going to do that much? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Ed, but it also applied to foreign uh, companies that are buying investment properties in Canada. So, um, you know, that could be more significant. Um, you know, I'm based in Vancouver and, and they they were one of the first jurisdictions in Canada to, uh, in BC to try and bring down a, um, a limit on foreign purchases. And it did make a bit of a difference. You know, it, it didn't stop the whole bandwagon of rising housing prices. Uh, that was more driven by very low interest rates. And uh, remember, that's going to turn around too. The Bank of Canada is already increasing interest rates. They're expected to increase them a lot more in the next little bit. So, you know, uh, it's painful, but that will do more for housing affordability, frankly, than anything else, uh, at least in terms of the property price piece of it. It means your mortgage is more expensive, but the housing price per se is definitely going to come down. Um, and I think the foreign ban will make a difference. I, I think it will make an incremental difference. Uh, okay, you're in Vancouver. You said, is that a, is that a huge market for, for foreign buyers? Oh, yeah, it was uh, until the B.C. government brought in some limits on uh, foreign uh, ownership. They've also complemented that with um, vacancy taxes so that you have to pay, you know, reasonably significant amount if you own a, a, a property that no one's living in. And uh, in Vancouver, uh, particularly, there was uh, an awful lot of both individual and investor interest from overseas in the in, in the housing here. And Vancouver's market under this provision has cooled off a bit relative to some of the other kind of mm -hmm. bubble situations that we see elsewhere in Canada. Uh, growth seems to be lacking, according to economists. Is there somewhere the government could have gone to help spur that on here? You know, I'm curious by that. I've, I've heard that refrain from some of the bank economists and business people and so on. Uh, it just isn't true. Uh, the, the reason the government's budget looks so good is precisely because growth has been so strong. And it's now we're doing more than just rebounding from the pandemic. Like we did rebound from the pandemic and that was a fast rebound and that was great, but we're above and beyond that now. Uh, and the numbers are stunning. In the fourth quarter of uh, uh, 2021, this is the most recent macro data that we've got, Canada's economy in nominal GDP terms was growing at an annualized rate of 13%. And, you know, this is uh, astounding. And this is what is just driving billions and billions and billions of dollars into federal and provincial coffers. And that's the main reason why the deficits are disappearing without the sort of austerity that we experienced in previous deficit reduction exercises. So uh, it is just not true. Uh, we've got a new labor force number out uh, just uh, this week from Statistics Canada in the wake of the budget. Unemployment's down to 5.3%, 73,000 jobs created. So the economy is growing. Now, there are things that we could do to make quality jobs and quality growth, uh, including, I think, uh, productivity, paying attention to productivity and uh, innovation, investment, that kind of thing. And there are a few items in the budget on those types of topics. But uh, it is precisely because the Canadian economy is 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 just going on all cylinders that the government had so much money to spend, uh, including for this dental plan and other initiatives. Yet the deficit came in $30 billion smaller than they thought it was going to be in uh in november so this is a marvelous situation this is a marvelous time in a way to be a finance minister jim i want to thank you for joining us my pleasure ed thanks for having me jim stanford is an economist and the director for the center for future work
Now, small business is the engine of the economy, as many will attribute. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business is the voice of small business in this country, and and Dan Kelly is the president, and he joins us now. And Dan, uh, as CFIB was a little disappointed, there was nothing for, for the members in this federal budget. What were you looking for? Well, we were hoping for an awful lot more. There were a few small things, uh, some uh, some tax changes that I think are going to be beneficial for some small businesses. But overall, it truly was quite disappointing. For one thing, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are just now starting to dig themselves out of COVID. Uh, but but the, all of the COVID support programs have ended. And even the program de- that was designated to help businesses recover from COVID has been taken away. Small firms right now are dealing with massive new cost increases, some made worse by changes in Ottawa in recent weeks, uh, and and there was no relief there either. So we've got this scenario where a lot of firms are, revenues are not back to where they were pre-COVID. Costs are dramatically higher than they were pre-COVID. That's not good math for a business that might be sitting on $160,000 worth of fresh debt that they've taken on just to survive over the last two years. Was the CFIB looking for some of these programs to continue for a while or, you know, if we're coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, look, I mean, with businesses being reopened, uh, we're not surprised that many of the subsidy programs have ended, the wage subsidy, rent subsidies and in their new names. Um, But I got to tell you, the, the program that I was surprised that wasn't extended was the Canada Recovery Hiring Program. This was a program meant it was it was launched in the fall of last year and designed to help small firms rebuild their workforce as they came out of the COVID emergency series of layoffs and shutdowns. Um, That program never saw the light of day because we were perpetually in wave after wave of COVID. Uh, Now that businesses are open and bringing back their staff, this is the time when that program would be super useful for starting basically from March, but it's ending uh, beginning of May. Uh, So we had urged the federal government to at least keep that program alive to help small firms bring back some of their workers, and it has ended too. The other thing that would have been a big help that didn't happen is forgiving some of the COVID-related debt. As I said, $160,000 is the average that small firms have gone into the hole trying to keep their lights on. $60,000 of that is in a government CBA loan, the Canada Emergency Business Account Loan, uh, the government has said 20,000 of that will be forgivable if it's if it, if the balance is repaid. We've asked for that to be moved up to 30,000 or 50% forgivable. Um, that didn't happen either. You brought up hiring. And, you know, when we look at the, the, the job creation in Canada right now, we've made more back, made back all the jobs we lost during the pandemic. Uh, what I'm trying to figure out, and I think a lot of people are, is why are your members having difficulty finding help? Yeah, for, for one thing, yes, I think if you look at the headline economic numbers across Canada, things don't look too bad. Uh, unemployment rate being low, economic growth being higher. Um, that's not always true, though, when you look at the small firms that were hardest hit by the pandemic. If you look at retail, hospitality, the service sector, arts and entertainment businesses, these businesses where social distancing, physical distancing was required for, through most of the pandemic, lockdowns were the longest, Uh, they are the ones that are struggling the most to get back their staff. Many people obviously have moved on to large companies and governments. Small firms have been left with very limited staff in some cases because somebody that worked at a restaurant says, well, I've been locked down five times. Uh, I I can't keep doing this. 
And so they've moved to other sectors. That's not the business's fault. No. That was as a result of the government policy. So what we've urged the government to do is to find ways to help small firms hire. And that was that hiring incentive that didn't get extended. But secondly, the, the feds did, to their credit, make some big changes to the temporary foreign worker program right now. And it's going to allow a lot more flexibility to small firms to use temporary workers, at least in the short term, to try to supplement the labor force. Uh, this is a big deal in, in resort communities where, where there's just nobody uh, available to, uh, to keep a hotel or resort open uh, as we move into the summer. So, so the feds did that prior to the budget, right prior to the budget. That was a good move. The other change that we did like uh, was they expanded access to the small business corporate tax rate for some more larger capital intensive small businesses. So uh, a farm or a car dealership, they might have lost access to that lower 9% small business corporate tax rate because their capital uh, exceeded the $15 million threshold. That's now been moved up to 50 million. Uh, so more small firms will be able, small and medium-sized firms will be able to take advantage of that. That was a good move from Ottawa too. Uh, one thing that you, uh, the CFIB was looking for was, or at least some, something to address was credit card fees, but, but no progress. Is that a government issue or is that a credit card company issue? Uh, it's a, it, well, it's both, but, but I will say credit cards, of course, many people, all people, I think, changed the way that they pay during the pandemic. There were lots of stores that were no longer taking cash uh, during the pandemic. So the use of credit cards went sky high during the pandemic. And, as, and, and many consumers don't know that the merchant pays a big fee whenever they use their credit card. And if you use your card online, the merchant pays an even higher fee for that. So there's been windfall revenues to the banks and the credit card processing companies, uh, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, uh, as a result of all of these changes. Um, but, the small, but small merchants have been paying a fortune. The federal government, the current liberals pr promised in 2019 to lower these credit card processing fees. Uh, in 2021, in their budget, they said that they were gonna lower credit card processing fees. And guess what? It's 2022, and they've said, we're gonna consult on lowering credit card processing fees. Well, that, that's just kicking that ball forward year after year. Small firms are facing, in addition to their limited revenue, they're facing rapid increases in all of their costs. And that relief on the credit card processing side would have, would have provided some, some help to small firms. Ottawa did find the time though to increase bank special profit taxes that go to Ottawa. So they found time to do that. <laughs> they didn't find time to, to follow through on their commitment to lower the processing fees that, that ultimately go to the banks as well. Dan, I wanna thank you for joining us. Anytime, Ed. Dan Kelly is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Our unpublished vote question asks, does the 2022 federal budget address your economic concerns? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today on the Unpublished Cafe, political commentator Warren Kinsella, economist Jim Stanford, and Dan Kelly of the CFIB. And I want to thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.